Welcome to Mindvine, a mental health podcast for everyone. Since our first episode in 2016, we have been sharing stories of recovery, engaging with experts, and tackling the stigma associated with mental illness. The Mindvine podcast is produced by Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences and is available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Welcome to the Mindvine Podcast. This is episode 95, and uh, my name is Daryl Mathers. I'm the I'm your host for this episode as we're going to talk one of our favorite subjects or two of our favorite subjects, um, mental health, obviously, being our mental health podcast, but being in Canada and uh, being at the center, close to the center of the hockey universe, we tend to have a lot of our guests um, that do have a hockey connection and uh, our next guest has not only a strong mental health connection, a strong hockey connection, but also a connection to Ontario Shores. So I'm pleased to welcome former NHL defenseman uh, Jay Harrison. And before I officially welcome you, Jay, everybody will know you obviously from playing with the Leafs, the the Carolina Hurricanes, the Winnipeg Jets, uh, the Oshawa Legionnaires for those locally. And uh, you're currently a mental health counselor. And you spent some time uh, after hockey working on your your next career at Ontario Shores. So lots of connections here. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Daryl. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I think what's interesting about your, you know your story, I remember when you actually did come to Ontario Shores, the buzz about having a hockey player at the hospital, you know, quickly made the the rounds and. Um, you have a bit of an unusual path, right? Like a lot of former hockey players um, maybe do the rubber chicken circuit or they open up hockey camps and schools, uh, stay in the game uh, in a more traditional way. Um, you're staying in the game in you know, a bit of an unconventional way. So talk about how, you know, a little bit about what you're doing now and how, you know, during your journey as a hockey player that kind of shaped all that. Yeah, thank you. I do. I, I reflect so fondly on my time. At Ontario Shores, it was a huge part of my professional development and a huge aspect of my transition out of the game and it kind of formed a bit of a backdrop. And uh, as I look back now at what is somewhat of a difficult time in an athlete's life, an area that I've you know dedicated a great deal of the second part of my career towards understanding and supporting this transition aspect, I look back now at my time at Ontario Shores and the relationships uh, and mentorship that I received there and the exposure uh, that I got, which looking back now was so powerful and instrumental uh, in my development. So uh, I'm happy to share uh, how I got to to Ontario Shores and certainly some of the things that I took with there uh, from my experiences there onto you know the the new work and ventures that I'm I'm continuing to explore. So my my path into, into mental health wasn't necessarily a straight line. I didn't always know that I wanted to be involved in it, but certainly as I got to uh, understand myself better and um, evaluate the game as well and better understand the experience of being a professional athlete and all of the aspects that come with it. I'd like to say the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, I started to recognize that there is a gap there, uh, particularly relating to the, the high-performance culture, not just in, in sports, in hockey gen- generally, but uh, you know, extending it into other sports and even elite in environments where, where mental health is a difficult thing to talk about, it's a difficult thing to understand, and it's a difficult uh, place to seek help. Um, and it aligned very well, understanding mental health, uh, very, aligned very well with, with my development educationally. I was always a very active student. It's a big part of me being a player. I was always academically inclined. I loved doing school. I actually found it had a huge performance-enhancing effect on me, which, uh, as we get to later, is where my doctoral research was in and better understanding how things that you do outside of sport uh, impact your mental well-being and even your performance in sport. Uh, but I always found that it was an edge for me. It, it, it gave me an ability to be resilient. I wasn't just tied to the results of the game. And my education continually took me towards psychology. Um, uh, my mentor, Dr. Larry Cash, would say I'm a very insightful personality, which means I ask why a lot, which is <laughs> an excellent place to be in psychology because uh, you get to ask why a lot and conceptualize quite a bit and uh, continue to learn more and also find new things in myself, uh, you know, what I might be capable of and where my skill sets lie. So. Um, you know, continually going through my career and getting educated. I had the fortune of playing professional hockey for 15 years. Uh, I was able to accumulate a lot of courses over that time and leave the game with a master's degree uh, in clinical counseling. And part of that degree was a clinical internship for one year 
um, and I was uh, fortunate enough to to be connected with some uh, people at uh, Ontario Shores, which provided me with some clinical supervision uh, and mentorship, which is where I was ultimately able to fulfill that requirement of my degree and then move on to become a professional counselor in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's very interesting when I think about you know your career. You weren't you know you weren't a first round pick you know who was you know earmarked to be in the NHL right off the bat. You really earned your stripes, paid your dues, spent a time in the minors before you know you eventually you know became a regular. I'd say in Carolina is where you kind of really established yourself. Um, but during that time, I would think you know you're a little bit younger than me, but I would think that. You were still living in old school hockey world, um, like when you when you said you asked like to ask the question why. I just imagine some of your coaches, not, you know, not necessarily being thrilled with always being asked why. But um, like, what was it? You must have been one of the very few players um, striving academically when you were in the minors, or were you? Like, is that just maybe maybe that's um, a stereotype? Well, it, it, there is all kinds. Certainly, um, as the game has evolved and changed over the past decade, you're starting to see more and more uh, of what we call this uh, career engagement strategy, you know, proactively exercising career development behaviors, whether that's through skills and knowledge acquisition, whether it's through networking, career planning, development. Um, but yeah, I come from a time where that was relatively limited. Uh, because of this, this tends to be a mindset, you know, especially with elite athletes, because of the temporary nature of, of the job, if you're not all in, you're out. Uh, and the fact that it could be taken from you every day actually doesn't, you know, support the idea of expanding your scope. It makes you double down. Um, it's kind of an, an interesting uh, observation that the more you, you try to orient athletes to say you need a plan B, the more you're telling them to emphasize plan A. Uh, because it's so dire and could happen so quickly. So, uh, you know, going forward, changing the script and the talking points and the, the whole, you know, ethos of that is starting to change. We're starting to recognize that that may not necessarily be the case. But for me, yeah, I was uh, somewhat selective with those why conversations, but always found teammates, friends to, to gravitate towards. And, you know, even uh, I found I have incredibly lasting relationships in the game through medical staff. That I played with, you know, physicians, psychologists, trainers, uh, strength and conditioning coaches um, that I formed some incredibly strong relationships with. And those relationships were really founded and reinforced through exploring conversations outside the game, um, whether they were philosophical, whether they were nutritional, psychological, medical, um, all of these aspects. Just I had this I had this unquenchable thirst to, to learn and acquire knowledge and, and continue to to evolve in that respect. So there's no shortage of information and, and conversations if you if you just go find them. Um, but the education and balancing the two things that sometimes throws people for a bit of a loop and how you might be able to do that. So uh, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on how that actually came to be and how athletes can be more effective. Uh, very structured people, but tend not to, to challenge the, the power structure. I never asked many coaches why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Those weren't the ones you asked why. Yeah, that's <laughs> probably good, good career, good career move. Right. But as you as you went through that process, as you, because I'm guessing it, you know, towards the end of your career, um, you know, you mean you transitioned from just being interested in academia to more focused on, you know, mental health as your second career. Uh, you know, was it common like w- that, you know, people n- knew what you were striving for? Did players come up to you and like ask you questions about how the brain works or mental health or what they were struggling? Did any of those kind of things happen at the end of your career? They, they, they certainly did. Um, and I guess that's also, you know, part, I think, of the, the attraction to the role as well is the, the sense of, of mentorship. And often found myself to be a very effective catalyst. And I kind of like to look at the counseling role as like a true catalyst for change. And, uh, you know, a catalyst comes along like an enzyme and plugs itself in and a chemical reaction occurs. And then the enzyme goes its own way and the cell goes its own way. Nothing left, you know, nothing left behind, nothing taken with it really encapsulates what the counselor does. It just, you know, facilitates something to happen for the individual, whatever that might be, and then goes on its way, leaving nothing and taking nothing. Um, and I did find that that did start to happen. It, it was leading by example, if you will. Um, people started asking more questions. How do you do it? Why do you do it? What does it mean? Why don't you just be a hockey player? And it also actually was incredibly you know, therapeutic for me to better understand why I was doing it too. I didn't necessarily come to mental health because I had the answers or because 
you know, I, I was, you know, the vision of what mental health could look like in sport, in fact, quite the opposite. A uh, number of the aspects of being drawn towards learn more about mental health more generally come from my own struggles. Um, while maybe not classifiable as, you know, diagnostic or clinical in that sense, certainly my experience through the game um, and well-being took a beating. Uh, and, you know, better understanding that and being an advocate for myself, I think, is ultimately, you know, part of any of the counselor, any counselor's journey. Um, you know, how, how can I help others? How can I help myself? How can I learn through my experiences to, to help others? So um, people would often ask a lot and it would come up and, you know, and it was, it's, it's just a, a great uh, feeling to be able to connect someone to a resource whether it's, you know, facilitative, like someone who wants to do something, career development, learn something about, you know, education, starting a small business, anything like that. Uh, or it's something a little bit more serious where someone says, you know, my relationship is struggling right now. Neither one of us are happy and we don't know what to do. And uh, it's an incredibly powerful um, privilege to be the first person to be told that in any situation. So, um, you know, that sense of leadership and honor also comes with this as well, which I obviously fed on and enjoyed. And, uh, getting the education was critically important to do this work for me. Um, advocacy is very important and we need advocates everywhere. Uh, but one of the uh, things that athletes tend to do is they're really good at putting up barriers and they're really good at distancing themselves from others who don't share similar experiences. It's a very easy diffuser of any serious conversation is you don't understand what I'm going through because most people don't. Um, so, you know, part of, uh, of the strategy I was re relying on becoming a counselor was also this aspect is that I'm, I'm actually building on a foundation of, of the ability to build rapport and connection to the real lived experience of these particular individuals and to be able to identify with their struggles in a way that's authentic and genuine um, that may you know, disarm some of that defensiveness early was, you know, I thought this could be a really cool opportunity to make real change and address uh, a serious gap in the service provision for, for elite athletes. It's an interesting time, well, in the world, but as it relates to hockey in terms of like change and um, meeting the needs of not just the modern day athlete, but the modern day person, which um, I would, I would guess uh, professional sports hasn't been great historically at um developing the person they've been focused on you know the physical abilities of that uh, individual rather than any emotional or, or mental health needs but you're seeing a shift now where you know not just in hockey but in the world where mental health is not just about going to see somebody when you're struggling it's about taking care of your your mind uh at a, a different points of you know a, of a season or every year whatever the case may be in your career as it related to the topic of mental health whether that meant like the accessibility of counselors or psychiatrists or psychologists at a team level to, you know, whatever you need. Did you see kind of the evolution during your time that it maybe you just didn't go to a counselor when things were, you know, were in a dire point players could go, even if uh, things were going well in terms of like maintaining their mental health, did that kind of stuff happen when you were still playing? Well, I think that's the gift of the, the change that you're talking about is, this trend towards mental health isn't the absence of illness or the absence of symptomology, right? There's, there's a thriving component. The well-being component is really, I think, what the catalyst is here. And this, this generation was being reinforced now and recognizes the opportunity positive mental health has, specifically as it relates to performance. Um, so for whatever reason, those two aspects were largely disconnected uh, and, you know, in some ways out of sight, out of mind, none of our business, not our problem. Um, you know, there are there are reasons the hockey culture and elite sports culture is not just hockey. Um, you know, there's you could you could write books and books on it. Um, but you know, the the idea that now players are, are looking, athletes are looking at their mental health and the positive status of their mental health and well-being as a performance edge. I think is the critical step that had to ultimately be made is connecting those two. Uh, and that has come with, you know, an enormous amount of work uh, to destigmatize and reorient what mental health means and what it actually is and how it exists along a continuum. All of those, those factors that those, you know, working in mental health advocacy and support clinically, um, you know, have, have been working towards orienting and, and educating people and society more broadly. I think sports is really catching on. 
and you're starting to hear players talk about, well, if I'm feeling better, if I'm doing better, if I'm more optimistic, I'm going to perform better. Now there's a vested interest. It's aligned with what they want. Too much, too many times, you know, just like I talked about earlier, the plan A versus plan B conversation, they're only going to adopt and adapt to what is aligned with what they're ultimately trying to achieve. So, you know, aligning things, whether they are, you know, adaptive mental health strategies and positive well-being or career development, career enhancement outside the game. Um, if we can align those and demonstrate their ability to support the performance, which is the ultimate goal and has been since they're four, um, we're going to get far greater engagement uh, uh, in, in using those resources and making connections and ultimately being able to make a difference. It's interesting, just the language that's changed too. Like I know hockey's notorious for not disclosing injuries, um, but you have seen instances where, um, you know, whether it's Carey Price or uh, other athletes who have had short-term or long-term mental health issues where it's been disclosed, where it's been uh, in public. And I would guess that that, you know, for somebody who's going through that, like the last thing you need is, is more layers of like, whether it's a stigma or fear, like the fact that we can in hockey and other sports that we can say what it is that it's anxiety or depression or, or uh, substance abuse would be freeing a little bit for some players, or at least um, maybe improving the environment, you know, for present day players or future players. I'm not sure if that's something you agree with. Yeah. I think there's, you know, with that recognition of the, the strength and vulnerability that, that dialect there, I think, is is coming to the recognition and players have to as much as anyone is that we're, we're largely the same as everyone else, probably about, you know, 98% of our daily functioning and our experiences. Um, you know, all the uh, epidemiological data supports that, you know, elite athletes are, are at least as likely to, to deal with mental health issues as the average people in their, um, you know, in their demographic. Uh, and they may even be at, at more risk based on the unique work circumstances, the, the, the pressures that, that come with that and the consistent evaluative nature of, a, of an elite athletic environment may actually create even unique factors. And um, now there's part of, of recognizing that. And one way to deal with them is to ignore them and assume they don't exist. And another way is to acknowledge them and work with them rather than working against them. And I think, you know, some some athletes are being you know, unbelievable uh, role models in, in that respect and, and saying, well, I'm going to deal with mine up front. And, you know, in my experience as well, while the game, you know, has has been criticized for certain aspects within those locker rooms as a, as a player, uh, no one has, has ever, you know, been, been ostracized in my experience because of that. In fact, it's the most welcoming group. They're, they're family. We're family to each other. And, and we embrace each other for our issues. None, to my experience, none of the stigma around mental health in, in, at least in our sport pertains that, well, I'm a hockey player and because I'm a hockey player, I can't have mental health issues or my teammates are going to judge me. Uh, the stigma is far more um, systemic in that it's, you know, what if somebody finds out I'm going to lose my job, you know, similar to what you might see in a, you know, first responders environment where there's, there's real, you know, economic consequences um, that must be considered. Right. So it's, it's an interesting, you know, dynamic where players aren't really worried about having mental health because of what it means to who they are, but rather how it's perceived by the more general culture. Um, and as it relates to their career viability and sustainability, which, you know, as, as a former player is, is always threatened. It's threatened every day. Uh, it's a nature, yeah. nature of the job. Um, so I think that's, that's why we have great caution in disclosing those and to have some of those, those players come out and, um, you know, openly acknowledge and, and demonstrate to others that this is a way to handle these particular challenges as well is, is really encouraging and supportive for everyone. Can you explain a little bit about like, your role within the NHLPA and, you know, you're wearing your NHLPA hat um, and I know you're, you work with players. So how does it, you know, like, like how does your role, I guess, work, uh, whether it's, whether it aligns or works differently than what resources might be available for available to players through their team? Like where, what role do you play? In sure. Um, I was brought on, uh, by, by Don Fear and Matthew Schneider as a consultant to the NHLPA. Uh, my title I work under is the wellness transition and performance specialist. Uh, and you know, after being in the PA, being on the executive board for several years, negotiating collective bargaining agreements, 
And this was an area that we continue to look to evolve and what else can we do to bring value to our players' lives and support their daily functioning, not just as players in a, in a labor perspective or in an economic perspective, but also how can we support them living their best lives through the game? Uh, and, you know, we know that uh, the NHLPA has amazing resources. Our player assistance programs are as good as any offered through any, any workplace. Um, they're, they're elite, the elite of the elite. Uh, but we continue to come to that challenge as players is that we're isolated and it becomes difficult to get players connected to those resources in a timely fashion. So my role specifically is, is acting as a liaison for our, for our players and to, to better uh, align them and orient them to the resources that they need, whether they be, you know, uh, in, a, in a mental health, in a crisis capacity, ensuring they get to the, the appropriate clinicians uh, to be evaluated and taken care of and get those resources they need all the way to, to working with players who may have more facilitative issues, like they're looking to expand and develop in, in their career space outside the game and how we align them with our programmatic offerings uh, that support career and professional development. Um, it could be extended family services, all the way to offering peer-to-peer -peer support for guys in their actual day-to-day -day performance as players. Uh, my unique experience um, professionally as both a player and then now as someone working in psychology uh, gives me the versatility to have some unique conversations with players, uh, none of them clinical, uh, but to ensure that those players have a soft landing point and can have a conversation with someone who genuinely understands and empathizes with what their current circumstance might be uh, and increase the likelihood that they'll reach out. So to date, it's, it's been very successful. Um, you know, guys are, are generally very open, but to have a shared experience of being former players and then helping guys align to those resources and maximize that at an early proactive uh, stage is something we continue to work towards and, and develop. So uh, it's a very exciting uh, thing to be a part of uh, and to, to grow as well, uh, along with the PA, just to support our players both in their career development, but also in their mental health and well-being for themselves and their families. Yeah. I was mentioning, you know, just before we started filming about the Seattle Kraken posting something uh, related. I think it was around Bell Let's Talk, but it was related to mental health. And they were talking about one of the players was talking about reaching out to you, you know, when they were struggling. And I would imagine, you know, you're not too far removed from the game. And that, like you mentioned earlier, like, you know, players are people, 98%. I forget what that number was, but essentially, like, they're no less or more likely to have a mental health issue than anybody else. But they live in a like a different world, right? Especially the young players who may not have uh, gone through different um, milestones in life yet. Like they've been living and breathing hockey their whole lives. Like people don't may not appreciate like twelve months of the year what these kids are doing, and when they get to the, that level, what they've been through already at twenty three, twenty four years old, and and uh, it must be um, it, it must help, I guess. And you kind of alluded to it, but build that trust already when you're so, you know, in your history in the game, you know, uh, coupled with your experience now, like, does it really, is it a bridge builder? I'm guessing your experience. Yeah, that's, that's precisely what it is. That's, that's the best analogy uh, to it. And I think even expanding, that's what my role is, is to be a bridge. Right. And the whole goal of it is to just increase the opportunities for players to connect and reach out to a familiar face. Right. So, uh, developing relationships with these players, understanding what they're going through, their unique circumstances. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of unique circumstances over that mark the ups and downs of a professional sports career, like in our sport specifically. I mean, you have players go, uh, getting called up, getting sent down, right? You have players on long-term injury, you have players on buyouts, right? Um, there's a number of, of different circumstances that you may not necessarily appreciate and its impact or the toll it may take on your day-to-day -day functioning. So if there's an ongoing supportive peer-to-peer -peer relationship going on uh, and you've had conversations with players, not just when things aren't so good, but when things are going well, uh, it creates and fosters an opportunity that, that may decrease the energy it takes to take the phone. That's really kind of what I, what I talk about. The, the, by a biological analogy I, I, I like to use is I want to reduce the activation energy it takes to pick up the phone. Very hard to call someone you don't know um, on the worst day of your life, uh, let alone the best day of your life. So, uh, you know, the idea is that we can have some of these conversations and make these connections and reflect to them, educate them on their resources that they have, um, orient them, giving them the knowledge, skills and awareness to, you know, better assess their own functioning and their functioning of their teammates. 
uh, will go a long way in you know how well they use the resources provided and we can continue to support their development in that way uh, that's what i largely see as, as my mission is how do i find better ways for players to be their own self-advocates and be self-directed in their own health and well-being um, which is somewhat of a gap that elite sport does create through my experiences you know as you talked about you know we, we focus on since we're, we're very very young uh, you know, oftentimes we, we live a very directed life and we're very responsive, um, but that some, at some level impairs our ability to be autonomous and proactive and seek initiative uh, for our own issues. Um, so part of the overarching strategy is to continue to cultivate and develop. And, and to be clear, those, those strategies are very effective in sport. We talk about things like coachability, responsiveness, adversity, things like that. You need someone who's somewhat responsive to an environment to thrive. Um, but also recognizing that other areas of our life may require more self-directed behavior uh, and, you know, the ability to have the awareness that maybe, you know, a couple of good games may not fix what's happening, um, which tends to be the default setting. Whether it's with your role with the PA or just in your experiences of being a player who's left the game and, and started, a, a, you know, a second career, that that transition from being a player to not being a player anymore. Um, to me, it sounds like it'd be very difficult because um, very few players leave on their own terms. Usually the game tells you when it's time for you to leave and do something else. Um, have you, do you, have you worked with uh, former players or is that something that the PA does or you do, or, or is it something you've supported just as a, a friend of former players? Is that an, is that even an area of struggle or concern of players who are kind of transitioning out of the game and into into who knows what and trying to maintain their mental health at the same time. No, it, it most definitely is um, an area of of conflict, specifically from an identity perspective and a psychosocial function as well. Remember, when someone transitions from sport, like you said, it's usually not on your own terms. You didn't see it coming for the past five years, we, although it may have been read the writing on the wall. It's, it, you know, you're still always believing in yourself that you're going to be your best and continue to overcome. But you combine that with the significant loss in identi identity, both, you know, inter and introspectively, how people see you, how you see yourself, uh, the social circle that you lose, the supportive uh, structure around you uh, is no longer present. Um, there's a, a whole bunch of self-efficacy that goes out the window and like the, the perceived abilities that you may have of being so specialized from such an early age, you may not see yourself as particularly capable. Um, so, you know, you combine all of these factors and it's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of risks and makes it a very tumultuous time in, in an athlete's career and getting a little psychological and on the research, we kind of call the transition a liminal experience. If you look at some of the research coming out of particularly the University of Florida has done a great job in capturing you know, and applying a bit of an Ericksonian approach to this period of life and calling it, you know, a stage of moratorium, if you will. And, you know, we look at this stage where people aren't what they were, but not yet what they're going to be. Uh, so it's a very uncomfortable purgatory-esque type area of identity and career development, which can be very uncomfortable uh, for athletes. And, you know, I've certainly noticed that, and the research would suggest that the more prepared you are for that, the less time you tend to spend. Uh, in that unknown period, everybody does with the degree of exploration and commitment necessary to transition from a career. But without doing a great deal of work, um, it can be some a place where you get stuck, uh, especially the, the big risk factors. If you look at the research, there's actually a former uh, hockey player named Dr. Peter Aston out of Stanford, uh, whose research shows the, the risks for, for depression and anxiety in retired professional hockey players is social isolation. Um, you know, it's, it's losing that social network. So, you know, part of that career development path and that positive well-being is recognizing that your transition doesn't start the day you retire or the day you no longer play. This is something that, you know, needs to be forecasted in the foresight and, and developed over time. And we encourage athletes, I certainly do, is, is that this is a five-year process. And when, when you walk out of the game, whenever that might be, you're starting to execute on a plan rather than starting to formulate an idea of what could be. And I think the, the most important part of that is overcoming that stigma around, well, if I'm doing that, then I'm selling myself out. If I'm planning my career after sports, somehow I'm demonstrating to everyone around me that I don't really believe in myself or I feel guilty 
uh, about not committing all of myself to the game. I'm somehow selling myself short. Uh, what, I, what I've actually found in, in my research and some of the research of others is that athletes who, who do engage in that actually function at a higher level. Their mental well-being is better. And research out of Australia shows that those athletes even perform at a higher level in their sport. Uh, so now we're kind of demystifying and, and creating a new ethos that, you know, developing yourself while you play is a performance edge. It's an advantage. Uh, use it, leverage your athletic exposure identity to create a wider network, to create wider opportunities, education, perspective, socially. And, and these are some of the, the protective factors that will guide you through that transition. Still will be rocky. Um, you know, the potholes are all over the place um, for us out there, you know, whether, you know, it's just so many things in your life change, you know, whether it's, you know, just uh, even you look at something like relationships with, uh, with your spouse, partner and children, uh, something that changes significantly, how to set a schedule, how to orient what was a good day and what wasn't. Was I productive today or wasn't I? Um, a lot of those metrics have to change and getting support and perspective is critically important in doing that. So we continually encourage players and there's more and more stories of it out there. Um, you know, you don't have to look far to see athletes who are leveraging their athletic exposure. Uh, and, you know, I like to call it to use a business analogy. I think these guys are the CEOs of their own brand. They're CEOs of their own company and they drive outcomes. They're just not passive recipients of being athletes and whatever will happen will happen. They actually have a keen awareness of, of what their purpose is and what drives them and use their athletic platform to connect to that. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that because you see, I don't know who the NHL equivalent would be, but you see people like LeBron James and Serena, uh, Serena Williams who are their own brands, um, you know, who have um, various interests like LeBron James is making movies, he's building schools, he's, you know, he's doing everything while still performing at uh, an elite level. And uh, I guess, I mean, we all are products to a certain degree of uh, the images we've seen, the messages we've received growing up and, you know, into our adulthood and uh, role modeling to a large extent, like, that could be a big shift for even players because you do have uh, even somebody in small town Canada, you, you do have a, a network uh, in order to start planning like your level of celebrity or whatever your the power the influence you have should provide you some opportunities to start branching out in other interests. Yeah, I found that the, the true resilience is the expanded self-concept, right? That's where the, 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 the efficacy, I have something to offer the world other than, you know, this unique and amazing ability to perform within a, you know, a very small construct, right, a, a sport. But that feeling is very contagious for players. And once they meaningfully contribute to something outside the game, then the ball it, is is gone, right? They're, they're on their way, you get a taste of that. And, you know, in my experience, we're, you know, we're looking at, you know, parsing this out and using some empirical, empirical support to actually see that, you know, but it, it's that is what buffers against the stresses and the ups and downs of the game where, where we see, you know, players who are exclusively, you know, athletic identity focused and don't demonstrate a great deal of, of career development outside tend to tend to struggle the most on their mental well-being. They have fewer things to be positive about and they're usually hung on. Uh, on the results of a game, which, you know, largely are out of your control. Um, so, you know, we're looking to, to further bolster that and how we can achieve that for players and building that resilience through at a diversified identity, which doesn't take away from the athletic aspect in one bit. Um, I think that's a real thing. And I think it's important coming from a former athlete, too, because I'm just not talking what I what I think or what I've read. Like I lived it. Right. And I say this to players. I talk to them player to player. I I say, listen, I. I did this when I played. I didn't miss a team dinner. I knew everything that was going on. I had so much fun. You know, I didn't actually have to give that much. I just structured my time in a way and kept my eye on the prize using some of those natural transferable athletic skills, the discipline, the determination, the competitiveness um, that got me to this level. I just applied them to education uh, in a way and structured my life in a way that, that created that balance. And I, I accumulated so many benefits from that, you know, whether I had a good game or bad game, I, I went home and studied and I felt great about it. I felt great about myself and it negated a lot of the negative impacts and it, you know, distanced myself from over investing in the good times, which are at best transitory in professional sports. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of different paths, right? If your path is education and somebody else isn't, um, 
there are, you know, there are lots of different ways to get to a, I guess, a constructive that's right. plan moving forward, right? That's, like that's not, the beauty of the game. And that's where we start to see the individuality of the players and connecting to what's important to them. You know, it could be philanthropy. Uh, guys are very interested in things like real estate development, right? Both commercial and residential. Um, guys are interested in, in like unique companies and unique causes, environmentalism. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of causes that may resonate with the individual that your athletic platform may give you an opportunity to explore more fully. Um, you know, you combine that with gaining a little bit of industry knowledge uh, and, you know, strategically doing some stuff in that space. And, and you, you all of a sudden have put yourself in a position to create something or do something that you never thought possible. It was just a couple uh, I guess, answers ago when we were talking about the transition to um you know, former to player to former player and how difficult that is. Justin Smoke, who used to play uh, Major League Baseball for several teams, including the Blue Jays, his uh, <laughs> he's retired and his wife posted something on social media I thought was funny. And I wonder if you can relate to it or know people who can relate to it. So she started working. They have kids. She started, you know, she's picked up a job. Kids were sick. And uh, she describes like having to explain to her husband that he has to cancel his golf game in order to stay home with the kids and how difficult a conversation that was. And I laugh because, you know, somebody like Justin Smoke or any professional athlete, especially when you have a family, like you are the center of the universe for so long, right? Like where they live depends on where you got traded to or where the opportunities are. Um, you know, you're being able to come home and have a nap in the middle of the day while your kids are not sleeping and different things like that. Like, you know, you really are the center of the universe for even if it's not at the at the team level, but in your family unit. And then and then you have to adjust to no longer being the, the center of the universe. So it could be could be difficult for a lot of players. Yeah, you, you make a great point in, in describing it that and, you know, somewhat paint, paints <laughs> athletes as a touch ju- juvenile and, and egocentric but, but they, they need to be they need to be and we need yeah. to be and you're, and you're right mm-hmm. and you bring in a really important aspect i touched on it very briefly but the familial component right and how you know relationships are reorganized um you know everyone has a different work-life uh dynamic right in, in justin's case you know his, his wife is, is going back and you know pursuing and establishing a career um which could have been part of their plan and and how you meaningfully do that and communicate, it's, it's a family decision. There's a lot of moving parts, certainly with children as well. And it really forces you, at least in my experience, to, like I said, like, well, what's a productive day and what isn't a productive day? Um, I'm always drawn to that. Like, you know, an athlete can go to, you know, the rink or the field for two hours that day and then come home and do nothing else and somehow feel productive. And then I see other athletes, you know, they... They went, they did, you know, some work and they picked the kids up to going to practice, had, you know, dinner with the family and then they lie in bed at night and can't believe they didn't do anything with their lives. Um, you know, it's just this restructuring and reorganizing of, of the values and what's important and what you're valuable for uh, is that critical piece and being open to that. And, you know, there is resistance in that, but also, you know, having the courage to embrace that as well um, is, is a critical aspect to adapting effectively is, is an openness to that change. And, not necessarily resisting it entirely. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is one of the things like uh, you certainly uh, need to start over. And that's a difficult thing too for athletes. Like how many other jobs are you the expert top 0.01% in your field at 21? <laughs> yeah. like, the idea of learning something new is, is incredibly frustrating <laughs> when you're used to being an expert and making something happen to which most people couldn't make happen. Like there's few surgeons who are 20 years old rocking the top of their specialization, no psychologist or psychiatrist, right? Um, so, you know, having that humility to learn something new can also be a challenge in giving guys the confidence uh, to do that. Certainly, I can speak to that from my experience, you know, becoming a counselor. There's a lot I didn't know, and there's a lot I still don't know. As my supervisor, Shelly McAllister said, if you're not comfortable walking around with a textbook for the next 30 years, you're not going to like doing this very much. Um, <laughs> So good thing I am, uh, but it did always remind me to have the courage to admit what I don't know and the vulnerability to ask questions and expose yourself. It's not the end of the world. You actually uh, have far more to gain from that position than always feeling you need to be the expert. I'm guessing like most people in psychology, you don't wear one hat 
Um, you probably have a few things on the go. What are some of the things, whether it's education or work that you're doing besides uh, what you do with the NHLPA? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I, I have a, yeah, certainly the, the consulting is, is a great place, you know, getting to work in, with professional athletes and elite uh, amateur athletes uh, is wonderful and, and consulting. Uh, one area that I will definitely touch on because it has a, a wiki connection is uh, about five years ago, uh, me and uh, five friends started the Whippy Watch Company, which is a microbrand watch uh, company that's founded right in our hometown of Whippy, Ontario. And uh, the mission of the Whippy Watch Company is to to tell stories of, of Canadian excellence and great Canadians through the art of watchmaking uh, and celebrating uh, Canada and taking Canada to the world. We find that watchmaking is a wonderful platform to tell Canadian. It's a very Canadian way to be proud, isn't it? It's subtle. <laughs> but if you notice it, we'll talk about it all, all day long. Um, and uh, we've had uh, some great success uh, in our community, you know, telling stories of Sir William Stevenson, you know, stores on Lake Ontario. So it was Camp X, uh, World War II, and he was the man called Intrepid. So our first line was about the Intrepid and continually to tell the story of Intrepid Canadians. Uh, we've had an opportunity to tell the Avro Arrow story as well and share that with the world, share it with Americans and Australians. Um, it's amazing how many people are connected to the Avro uh, family connections once, twice removed, uncles, aunts, grandparents who, who worked on the project, and it really touches a lot of Canadians. So uh, anybody out there who's looking for a unique gift that's, you know, uh, undoubtedly Canadian, uh, I suggest you check out uh, Whippy Watch Company. It's a uh, it's a very cool project. That I'm learning a lot about the manufacturing industry, certainly the watch one, and uh, it's it's a passion project that I love very much. But it does keep me on my toes, and uh, does like you said, uh, keeps me versatile and always engaged in new things. Yeah, it seems like that's uh, a theme for you, right? You you move into one thing, but you've got you're always learning something completely different on the other side. Yeah, there is. There's a there's a versatility to me. I like I like to say I like to see myself as, as as versatile and do a lot of different things in a day. But I, I actually stumbled against that in my transition. I'm like, well, what the heck is the theme here? You know, I uh, I was a partners with a with a friend, and we had a, a supplement that you know treated concussions. We had an exit from that company, but and and I had the help and support of people around me. I have the mental health, you have all of these things. There's an underlying theme, right? There's a supportive developmental theme in, in that and in, in bringing a certain story in it, whether it's through inspiration, mentorship, um, or insightful leadership um, to holistically see the potential in people that they may not necessarily see in themselves at that time. And I've, I feel what I've learned from, you know, from the greatest coaches I've played for, I've been lucky enough to play for some of the best, you know, Hall of Famer Pat Quinn was my first NHL coach and a huge mentor of mine was Paul Maurice, played for him uh, almost, you know, most of my NHL game mm -hmm. uh, is you, you know, the first step in being an effective coach um, or mentor is seeing something in someone that they don't see in themselves yet. And you can't guess, you have to actually see it. It has to be <laughs> there, but you have to be able to manufacture that confidence for them to realize what they may not re understand is realizable yet. Um, so uh, oftentimes that, that is a huge, uh, aspect of my, my mission and, and, and motivation, whether I'm working with 10 year old softball players uh, or I'm working with professional athletes. Um, I, it's my job to find the, the beauty in you and the gifts in you and shape them in a way that you can fully realize their potential and do whatever you want. Just as you mentioned, like young athletes, uh, you know, sports for youth is, can be tricky. Right. In today's world, uh, just with, uh, you know, we've hinted like specialization and how um, you know, it's certainly not what I remember as a child, you know, being exposed to several different sports. It's uh, a lot of times, um, especially uh, in these parts, uh, hockey becomes the primary focus uh, really early on. And uh, do you have advice for parents when it comes to, you know, managing expectations, um, you know, that desire to be an, a, an athlete, whether it's a lead or not, and balancing kind of the mental health piece of it? Yeah, this is, this is tricky is a great word for it, Daryl. I have, I have a lot of thoughts as, um, you know, as a former athlete, as, as a child athlete, and my experiences, uh, and now as a father of four um, with athletes in the house as well, spent a lot of time reflecting on it. And it's a difficult time. It's, it's not fair to judge what it was like when we were kids. Or you know, even the generation before us, uh, when youth athletes was about athleticism, 
you know, generally speaking, an effective athlete could make any team based on their athleticism. Usually they could run, jump, shoot, and have the hand-eye coordination that got them through a tryout to, to get access to an elite training environment. Now, the, the, the hyper-specialization of sport is now teams aren't picked on athleticism. They're picked on skill development, right? And you're watching a, you know, an 11-year-old hockey tryout, and they're talking about hockey IQ. Right. Um, that's a very different thing that, you know, maybe some kids who are good athletes and have potential will not get access to those environments anymore. So it's this, this real catch 22 for parents is that in order to get my kids access to the highest development, they need to do this 20 and 24 hours a day, basically, um, which makes it difficult. Now I have to make a choice at eight years old what my child's sport is going to be. And that's the exact opposite of what I want for them. But I also see they have athletic potential. Uh, so, you know, in this, so you feel you have to give something either I'm, I'm going to, you know, have to take away from their athletic, you know, development and potential in order to create a more balanced uh, sports experience, right? Or I'm going to sacrifice that balanced sports experience to get the maximum out of them. It's, it's, it's a no-win situation. It becomes very difficult. And what I encourage, you know, parents to do, it's, I stole the line from, from finance. It's, it's KYC, right? Know your client is what they say all the time. I hear these finance guys saying. Well, I, I use the KYC too. I say, know your child. Um, not every child needs the most uh, competitive environment to effectively get what they need out of sports. Some kids do, and they'll usually let you know who they are quite easily. Um, but not every person needs to play sport at the highest level and elite level to get all they need out of sport. We all have different things and sometimes, you know, parents' perception of what that might be would be very different. And that's a whole other conflict that your children are, are here to fulfill their lives, not yours. Um, and the old, uh, you know, if, if someone would have given me this much opportunity, then I would have somehow done more with it. Overcoming and battling those demons is, is a critically important piece to being a mindful sport parent. Uh, but recognize what do you want your children to get out of sport? What do you want? And be honest with that. And then also be honest with what that's going to cost, not just from a financial perspective, but what's that going to cost emotionally, developmentally? What's the opportunity cost going to be to that child? Um, and being consistent and being true to it and being disciplined with it. It's one of the hardest things to do as well. So, um, and again, it's, it's a path made by walking. Uh, I, don't, I don't claim to have the, the recipe and how you navigate an increasingly professionalized a youth sport and environment, which is incredibly transactional, where if a kid's not good, then there's no point in playing, um, which which is clearly not why sports is part of society and has been for thousands of years if it was only reserved for the very best people. Um, it's for everybody for a reason. So, uh, you know, finding that medium and that developmental balance and is my kid getting what they need and meeting those challenges appropriately? Are they being challenged in a way that it's not too easy, but certainly not detrimental to their overall global development? And are they missing other things that I think are important? It's a, it's an honest conversation. I think all parents have to have with themselves, which maybe sometimes goes underexplored. Yeah, but it's really tough too because uh, it, that area is so consumerized right now, mm -hmm. right? And um, it's easy as a parent to get caught up, right? When somebody's Airplane. organizing something, yeah, and like they, they need to do this, they need to do this, and then there's an engine behind the scenes because they're trying to meet targets and revenues, uh, not necessarily produce elite athletes. Um, some of these you yeah. know, businesses it's, out there, it is, right? It's, it's really hard. All the kids on the team are, are getting this training or, or using this, like you're left with that, that feeling that am I not doing right by my child? Am I not giving them the opportunity they need um, to succeed? So, you know, sometimes I, I look back and at least I try to cope with that as like, well, in my sport, we would find the players wherever they were. I remember, you know, like <laughs> go ask some of the Russians what kind of exposure they had to when they were young. I mean, you know, we'll, they'll go find kids in Magnitogorsk, Russia who can play with, you know, barely have any equipment on you don't necessarily need a thousand dollar stick or bat to hit the ball you probably <laughs> just need something <laughs> yep. right? and, and you know and allow the, the child to develop and, and shape the course of their own development um doesn't mean you let anything go and certainly finding points to create opportunities for development and teachable moments is critical uh when it comes to you know values that are important to you 
you know, whether it relates to, you know, commitment, training, teamwork, accountability, things like that. Confidence, certainly those are the areas that sport allows us to challenge and grow. Um, but it, it's a it's a it's a dynamic and there's a, it's a two way and it has to be received and, and fed from both the parent and the child in a way for it to be sustainable and ultimately healthy. Yeah. And there's also a good idea to have some math. Uh, knowledge about you know how many people like yourself actually get to live out their dreams, yeah, right? Like, like a friend of mine, he said, he, he uh, go to a group and ask, you know, how many players, athletes get, you know, Division One scholarships. Nobody knows, and it's like roughly point zero eight or something. And like, okay, so anybody hoping for that, you should probably cross that off your list as the outcome you're looking for. <laughs> and then he's like, how many people get, you know, STEM scholarships? academic scholarships and the numbers are closer to eight percent um and so how many of you spent ten thousand dollars on math and science this year yeah, yeah. right Zero. If, you're, yeah. If, you're, if you're playing the odds of a scholarship a math tutor is probably far more effective than a skating or hitting coach yeah. um and getting a return on that investment so again that's part of that, that being honest component which, yep. is, which is very hard to do um but it, it is, it's a funny uh, analogy. You'll spend way more developing an athlete than you'll ever get in scholarship. Yeah. It better be more than that. <laughs> yes. Well, and yeah, and you can't live out your kids' dreams, right? And I think that's what parents, you know, we get, we get caught up in. We want our kids to succeed and have yeah. opportunities. And, and then we have a group of people that are telling us, if you do this, they'll be better. If you do this, they'll be better. And it's like, yeah, you, said, you, and you know, that's a it. tough one. I've often tried to parse out that, you know, because some, Sometimes people, you know, phrase it as, oh, you don't live through your children. But I, I, I sometimes take pause in that because in many ways, that's a very healthy thing to do. In many ways, that's part of having children is living through their happiness, right? Uh, you know, whether it's through their experiences, you know, through their successes, you know, and through their lives, you know, it, it is, it's totally okay to fully invest yourself. You don't have to be distanced from your children's success. You can be very much a part of it and experience through them. It's um, it's when you, you conflate your own success or your own sense of, you know, failure, well, and it's equated to your child. So when those two things become inherently linked, then you're, you may be overinvested uh, in not necessarily living through it in the, in the most adaptive way that's healthy for both yourself and the child. So uh, totally cool. I love the idea of living through my children's successes and, you know, watching them and being a part of that. Uh, but when their failures become reflections of me and I have resentment towards them, you know, because of that inability to perform at a level that I think they're capable of or that they need to be capable of to continue their development, then, it, you know, it, start, it starts to become something a little less uh, than what it, what it could be and probably um, would be considered healthy. Well, that's great advice. It's been fun chatting with you. We could talk uh, about this and other subjects for for much longer, but I uh, appreciate you taking the time and good luck with everything you're doing, uh, not only in hockey, but in mental health and, and the rest of your, and watchmaking and the rest of your uh, yeah. endeavors. Well, I, I, I appreciate it uh, very much. Thank you for the opportunity. And like I said, I'm um, so privileged to have the opportunity to be a part of the Shores family for a year uh, and get the experience invaluable. It fundamentally changed who I was personally and professionally, and I hold a lot of those relationships very dear. So. Uh, it's a wonderful place that does wonderful work. Thanks, Jay. Take care. Cool. Have a great one. Thanks, y'all.